That'll just give you a little taste of what you can expect this evening in worship and word. Our desire is to exalt and to lift up and to praise the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you to invite family, friends, um, anyone that you can think of, get here early, and we're going to celebrate Jesus tonight. So thank you. The story is told of a man by the name of Bob who had grown weary of his friend Ken who seemed to always be name-dropping. In fact, he got so frustrated one day with him, he blurted out, you know, if you're such a big shot, he goes, why don't you go over to the phone and call the White House and get the President of the United States on the line? And Ken looked at him and said, well, okay, that's kind of strange. And he went over, grabbed the phone, started to dial, listened a couple minutes, had a conversation, and held on a little longer. And the next thing you know, he's having this conversation, walks over to his friend and hands him the phone. And sure enough, he hears a voice say, hello, this is the President of the United States. And the guy's like, wait, you know. That this has got to be some kind of a trick. He goes, you know what? Well, you know, if, if you're really all that and who you think you are, why don't you go ahead and get the Queen of England on the phone? And so he goes, wow, okay. Dows some other numbers, waits a minute, dows a couple more, goes in and hands him the phone. And sure enough, he hears this, you know, distinctly English voice saying, you know, this is the Queen of England. And he was impressed, but he was a little suspicious still, and he said, you know what, all right, you know what, so you happen to know the president, you happen to know the Queen of England, you know, big deal, but if you're really all you think you are, uh, let me see you get the Pope on the phone. And about this time, Ken's getting a little bit tired of all this testing, he said, you know what, I'll do even better than that. He grabs a phone, makes a phone call, five minutes later, there's a knock on the door, there's a chauffeur, there's a limousine outside, they both get in the limousine, they drive to the airport, get in Ken's private jet, and off they go to Rome for a trip to the Vatican. They get to the Vatican, they get to the plaza, and, you know, Ken disappears, and Bob's left there with the crowds, these masses of people, and uh, next thing you know, uh, there's this hush in the crowd, and, and as everyone looks up, they see the Pope and Ken come out onto the balcony, <laughs> and, and before Bob can say anything, a guy in an Italian accent looks over and goes, hey, uh, who's, who's that man up there with Ken? <laughs> you know, hey... Facts don't lie. You know, facts don't lie. There are some things in life that are self-evident. They just speak for themselves. In fact, I enjoyed when I was younger, some of you may remember the old TV show Dragnet. And uh, perhaps you'll recall those moments when officers Gannon and Friday would be interviewing a witness who would then proceed to tour the universe with an answer only to be interrupted with the famous sentence or line, just the facts, ma'am. You know, just the facts. You know, because the facts speak for themselves. And the fact is, this coming week, millions of people throughout the world will celebrate Christmas. Webster defines Christmas as the festival celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ. No other birth in human history has been so celebrated. The facts speak for themselves. The fact of Jesus' birth is not in question. The fact of Jesus' death upon a cross historically is not in question. The fact of Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead after his death upon the cross is not in question. See, the question is, how do we respond to those facts? And specifically today, I want to focus our attention on three responses to Christmas that I found in the Bible that I believe represent all of humanity's response to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we examine these uh, three responses, I want to challenge you to consider carefully which response best reflects your personal view of Jesus of Nazareth. 
So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, the Gospel of Luke. We've been going through it, as many of you know who have been with us each week. We've been going through Luke's eyewitness account, an autopsy, so to speak, of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as seen through the eyes of the physician, Luke. And as we look at this, we'll see that in in Luke chapter 2, in verses 1 through 7, we'll see the first of three responses to Christ or to Christmas. It says, now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for him or them in the inn. You know, Joseph and Mary, who was about to give birth, were told to Jesus, made the long, difficult journey uh, back to Bethlehem to register for the census. We're told that they did this in order to fulfill their responsibility to Roman law and at the same time fulfill God's promise that was made almost 650 to 700 years prior to this through Micah, where we're told that God's Savior would be born in the town of Bethlehem. You know, an interesting backdrop as we look at this to this census is that the decree was made, we're told, by Caesar Augustus. Uh, all the Caesars would take different names, and Caesar was a particular name that was given to those who were in leadership over the Roman Empire. Uh, the title Augustus was taken for the first time by this particular Caesar, and the reason for it is very simple. The word Augustus actually meant that reverent or to be holy or to be revered, and it was never used ever up until this moment in human history by any man as a It was a name or a title that was saved for the gods in Roman mythology. You know, until this time that Caesar chose to be Augustus or to be revered or to be holy, he was basically deifying himself and making himself God. And I thought how interesting it is that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those of us who are under the law. But in the fullness of time, God's timing is always perfect. He's never late. He's never early. And we see that regularly. And it's perhaps one of the greatest struggles that each of us have in our life as to the timing of God. God, why now? Why this? Why at this time? And we seem to struggle with God's timing as if somehow or another he would ask us when we would like these things to occur in our life, like we'd give him an answer. You know, uh, you know, I don't think I could ever fit into my time schedule cancer, but, you know, but if you're asking when I would like it, I'm thinking never. <laughs> I don't know about you, but so it's kind of like, you know, we're always struggling with God's timing. Well, God's timing is perfect. And after 400 years of silence to humanity, God finally, heaven opened up and broke forth in song and praise that God's plan was right on time. And the point of all of this is that the backdrop is that Caesar Augustus was ruling the Roman Empire, but as always, God was in charge. And that is the way it always is. God used Caesar Augustus and the law and the census to fulfill his own words that were said almost 700 years prior that God's Savior would be born in Bethlehem. And in submission to Roman law, in submission to human authority, Joseph and Mary made their way to Bethlehem, but at the same time, God was orchestrating in control of all things. I personally take great comfort in that, 
Because regardless of what other people in our life do or even the enemy of our, of our very souls tries to do, there is nothing that can happen to us in any way, shape, or manner without God's approval for his purposes, for his glory, and for our growth. One of the things that I have come to understand very clearly is that he who began a good work in us, the moment that you and I repented of sin and trusted in Christ as our Savior, being born again by the will of God and by, not by our own human efforts, the day that we're born again, entering into the family of God, is the day that God says, he who began a good work in you at that moment in time, that strategic, historic moment in time, uh, will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's goal is that he conforms each and every one of his children into the image of Jesus Christ so that when people see us they see Christ and they're attracted to him as our Savior that's why Paul said I've been crucified with Christ I died with him on the cross I rose I, I rose with him as he was risen from the dead I have been risen to the newness of life and it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives through me and this life I now live in this flesh I live by my faith in the Son of God who was crucified and gave himself up for me the beauty of this and the backdrop is that God is always in control. You know, when they arrived in Bethlehem, the days were completed for Mary to give birth, we're told, which took place in a manger because there was no room for them, and more specifically for him, in the inn. You know, it's not difficult to recognize that the place was packed with people. Bethlehem is not a big city. It's not, you know, a, a, a favorite tourist attraction. At least at that time, it wasn't. And, uh, and, and so there wasn't the accommodations for the numbers of people that would descend upon the city at one given moment in time. So it's not hard to understand that by the time Mary and Joseph got there, that the town was woefully unprepared for such numbers. And every possible place to stay was booked. And when Joseph and Mary came to this inn, which, which, by the way, is merely an enclosure. You know, there's two different words that are used in the Greek language for an inn. One of them represents what you and I would more commonly refer to as an inn, a place where there's a host and you can get food and you can get provisions and a place to rest and a place for entertainment. But that's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here, that there was no room for them in the inn, was a place that was basically an enclosure. Were, were those who were traveling through town and they were, they were heading through with their herd of cattle, for example, they would go into this enclosure. Now, basically, it was just four walls with a gate and an enclosure. And they would go there, and that's where they would find rest. They would find no food. They would find no host. They would find no entertainment. Every now and then, there might be just a little apartment of some kind where they could find a place to lay their head or to rest. But the place that Jesus was born was basically a place where animals were kept in four walls of an enclosure. And there wasn't even any room for him there. He was sent out to an outhouse and said, if you can find something out there, then that's fine. And they put him in a manger, which was basically a, a, a trough, a feeding trough. And I think of the God of the universe descending to such humble beginnings. And that's why the Bible says that we have the attitude in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus, who though existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he humbled himself and he took on the appearance of the likeness of a human being. And he was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. And therefore, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord to the glory of God. 
these humble beginnings are what we celebrate, the humility of our own creator. The point of, of all of this is that the innkeeper, his response, I believe, was one of apathy or indifference. It was, he, was, they, he was apathetic to the plight of this young couple about to give birth. Literally, God came knocking at this man's door, and his response was apathy and indifference. You know, Christmas is a time to celebrate God's gift to man, the birth of Jesus, but many folks are apathetic, even indifferent, to the significance of the moment. You know, they're distracted by the busyness of life or the opportunity to cash in on the occasion, and many have no room in their life to ponder what Christmas is really all about. You know, the innkeeper reflects so many of us where he wasn't totally closed-minded or hard-hearted, you know, after all, he did say, well, if you can find room out in the outhouse, you know, have at it. You might find a trough to stick your baby in after he or she is born. You know, it's, it's kind of like, but just don't interrupt me because I'm really busy right now and I'm trying to cash in on this census and I've got a lot of work to do and I've got money that I can make and, you know, this is just a, a gold mine for me. You know, I think of him and I think back on my earlier days in life and I you know, I'm ashamed to admit that there were many times in my own life where, you know, the only room I had for God in my life was maybe Christmas and Easter, you know, the biggies. And uh, the rest of the year was kind of like, you know, God, I, you know, if, if you don't demand anything of me, then I won't demand anything of you, and we can just go on living our lives, you know, happily and, and, and coexist. And, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I sense that in, in the innkeeper, we don't know much about him. You know, this could be pure speculation, but, you know, I, I believe that his response is one of apathy. You know, and, and while outwardly it may look like the world is celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ, God's gift to man, in reality, many folks are apathetic or indifferent to him. You know, they, sure, they like the extra days off of work or the Christmas bonus or parties or the gifts that are given in exchange, but they really haven't thought much about the one who's made it all possible give you an example of a quote Christmas card that we received at our office and you know when I read it and it just and I cringe but when I think about may the spirit of the season remind you of the strength and perseverance of our nation and its people and I go what may the spirit of the season which I'm not real sure what they mean remind us of the strength and perseverance of our nation and its people how heretical that is. May the spirit of the season remind us of God's great love for us and the gift that he has given us in the person and the work of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we never be so sidetracked by such nonsense that we begin to believe that Christmas is about anything less than the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. See, in Luke 8:14, if you recall, as we went through Luke, Jesus warned about the hardness of the human heart. And as we pray today that those who receive the message of God's great love, their hearts would be softened to recognize and understand what Christmas is all about. And Jesus went on and he, worried about the, he warned about the deceitfulness of riches that would choke out God's word. In Matthew 19, if you'll look at that with me, Jesus clearly teaches of the danger of putting money and things before God. When a young man who comes to him, who is very wealthy, asks him the question, 
the question that is so important that all of us ask of God. And in Matthew 19, verse 16, we read, And behold, one came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Isn't that the question that most people have? What do I got to do to be right with God? I met with a man yesterday that I'd met at the cancer center, and he had given me his number and his address, and, and I'd prayed about going over to meet with him and talk to him and took over one of the CDs that we had been given out for Christmas to, to those who were interested, and Linda put together and, and a friend a, a gift for his wife and went over to his house and knocked on his door, and, and he allowed me to come in, and she wasn't there, and I had an opportunity to sit and talk for about 40 minutes with him. But unfortunately, one of the things that he said was so often the case in many of, of our lives he said, you know, well, you know, I've, I've had a good run. I've lived a good life. And it was an opportunity to, to share, but, but what if God's standard is higher than good? What if his standard is perfection? Have you lived a perfect life? And then we began to share with him that, you know, there are even people in Saddam Hussein's family that would say he was good to them. And he said, you know, I remember historically Joseph Stalin's daughter saying that my dad was always good to me. And he was one of the most heinous dictators of the, 21st century, of the 20th century. And to think that, you know, God's standard is perfection. It's not, I've lived a good life because goodness is relative to something else that we would be compared to. And it gave me an opportunity to share with him that God's standard is perfection. And see, this man came to Jesus with the same false notion that somehow there's something I can do to earn my way to heaven. And Jesus now would use that question and answer it in such a way that he would show him that that's not possible. And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, then what am I still lacking? And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. He says, but when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were astonished and they said, then who can be saved? He said, and looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You'll notice that Jesus laid out some of the commandments in order to test this man that he can reflect on his own life. Did you ever commit murder? Did you ever commit adultery? Did you ever steal? Oh, no, I haven't done any of these things. Oh, okay, great. Well, then go sell everything and come and follow me. The one commandment that Jesus did not specifically mention was the greatest of all commandments, and that is that you would love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus knew that this man did not love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. And therefore, he told him to do that which he knew he would not do because that was the thing that was keeping him and hindering him from his relationship with God. He said, go sell everything. And the man turned and walked away, and he was saddened by the fact that he had a lot of possessions, and he wasn't willing to give any of them up in order to have a relationship with God. See, so many of us want to have God on our terms. 
He says, turn from sin and turn to God. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, his resurrection from the dead, and you shall be saved. And we say, no, I don't want to just do that. I'd rather do it my way. Is there something else I can do? Can I still have control over my life and God throw you a bone on Christmas or Easter? Can I still have control over my life and do the things that I want to do when I want to do it and just write you a check to the vision fund for the property or something like that? Is there any way that we can negotiate and trade off? And the answer is no. God is not open to negotiations because we have nothing with to negotiate. Everything we have comes from his hand. It is all his to begin with. We have nothing to negotiate. See, the point of all this is there is nothing more important than loving God and putting him first in life. It is the greatest of all commandments. You know, it's interesting in a conversation that I had yesterday with this man as he was looking forward to and preparing for his death. We began to talk about some very personal things. And I shared with him that, you know, there's one thing that I'm learning through the process that I've been going through, and there's nothing more important than to have a right relationship with the God who created us through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone for the forgiveness of sin. God has a way of putting all our priorities in order. We all understand our mortality, but he takes it from the back burner of our life and he puts it on the front burner so that we constantly are aware of it. This man is constantly aware of his mortality. He understands that his days are numbered. And yet at the same time, all of our days are numbered because it's appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. God has numbered each of our days before yet we've lived one. He knows every day that we shall live before we've lived one. And I said, there isn't anybody that I've met in the, in the brief time that I've had in dealing with people who are, quote, terminally ill. The only difference between them and most of us is that they recognize it, and the rest of us don't, even though we're all terminal. And the reality of all of it is, is that, you know, there isn't anybody that I've ever sat next to their bedside who was about to die who ever said, you know what, I really regret that I didn't work longer hours. I really regret that I didn't make more money. I really regret that I didn't sell more product. The innkeeper on his deathbed will never regret that he didn't book more rooms. But the one thing that we'll all regret if we don't use the time that God has given us wisely, is the day that we rejected Jesus Christ, God's gift to us for the forgiveness of our sins. See, Solomon at the end of his life looked back and said, you know, there's three things I've learned from life basically that come down to this. Number one, you better fear God. Fear God. He's our creator. He's our maker. He says, fear God. You know, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God for those who have not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, for they will be held accountable for their sins. See, that's why the Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. The text goes on to say that God didn't send his Son in the world to judge the world or condemn it because the world's been condemned already. For they have not believed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, and then he went on to say, obey his commandments. And what is the commandment of God? That you believe upon him whom God has sent. His commandment is that we repent from sin and we turn and trust to Christ. That's God's commandment. And he said, and remember, one day everyone will give an account for his or her life. 
for you and I who have trusted in Christ, we will give an account on the things that we've done in God's name for his purpose, for his glory, for the purposes of being rewarded by God. What a wonderful day that will be for many. For those who have rejected God's gift of forgiveness in Christ, they will give an account to God for the rejection of the only Savior they could have ever known. See, when we look at this and we understand this, everything falls into place. And the question that I have for you is, are you apathetic or indifferent to Jesus due to the busyness of your life? Yesterday, this gentleman looked at me and he was thinking. And I could tell he was thinking about things that he had never thought about. He was thinking about things that were put in such a way that he couldn't reject them without at least giving them some consideration. And my prayer is that he will continue to think about them until he humbles himself and trusts, humbles himself and trusts in Jesus as a Savior. See, it's time to make time for him while you still have time. For it is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. You and I don't know if today is that day. God says, make time for Jesus today. Consider who he is. Consider his claims. Consider his work. Consider his death on the cross and the power of his resurrection. Consider that there's no other name in human history that stirs up more emotion than the name of Jesus. Consider the fact that millions of people around the world this week will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Consider what that means to you. If you haven't really thought about it, if you thought that it's, it's something other than what it is, consider the significance of that moment in time. Give it some good consideration. Ponder it. Meditate on it in your heart. Ask God to reveal to you who is Jesus and what was his purpose in coming. And how did he have such an impact on the world when he never, you know, he never had a kingdom here on earth? He was never given an earthly title in any way. He lived for only three years publicly ministering and teaching, and, and he's turned the world upside down. The man I met with yesterday said, consider the fact that the Christian church meets on Sundays when Jews met for centuries on Saturdays as a Sabbath. What, what happened on Sunday? Jesus rose from the dead. And all of human history changed. Consider the life of Saul of Tarsus, a man who hated Jesus Christ and Christianity and those who followed him and was, was dedicated to stamp out the name of Jesus from human history. And consider the fact on the road to Damascus, he saw Jesus alive after his crucifixion when he had been trying to convince everybody he was dead. And he bowed his knee and he bowed his heart and he received him as his Savior. And he went on and his life was transformed forevermore. And we know him as Paul, the great apostle, who was the greatest advocate of Jesus Christ and the word of God and the truth that he is risen and he is alive just as he said. Consider history. You've got to consider these things and stop being so caught up in the busyness of life because one day your life will come to an end. And that is the only thing that you'll ever regret having not considered. While some folks may be apathetic or indifference towards Jesus, you know, others are outright angry and hostile. And that was King Herod's response to Christ, the Christ of Christmas found in Matthew chapter 2. Flip back a few chapters and we see the anger of this man when he found out about the birth of this king. In Matthew chapter 2, we read, Now after Jesus was born in, the Be in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? 
For we, have, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said he was born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who shall shepherd my people of Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time that the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to him that I too may come to worship him. What a liar. The guy was full of it. He was a liar. And having heard the king, they went their way. And lo, the star which they had seen in the east, they went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child and Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. From the very beginning, they knew that he was God in human flesh, for only God deserves to be worshiped. And they worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child, his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Out of Egypt did I call my son." Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged, and he sent and he slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the environment around for, from two years of age and under, according to the time which was ascertained by the Magi. And I look at this man's life, and he was troubled, and he was enraged that he had been tricked because he tried to trick the Magi and fool them into saying, find out where he is, I want to come to worship him. He didn't want to come to worship him, he wanted to come to kill him. Because there's one thing that a king understood, and that is this. There's no room for two kings. You got one king, one throne. It's kind of like, fellas, you know how we got that chair in our house? Same thing, brothers. It's that reclining chair. It's like, hey, hey, hey. I walk into the room. Someone's in my chair. It's time to get up. <laughs> there's not much I have here on earth, but I got a chair. And I intend to sit in it as long as God allows and not only sit in it, but I intend to sit in it like this. <laughs> he understood there's only one throne. And you can't have two kings when you have one throne. You know, and he wasn't about to get off his throne without putting up a fight. And I ask you the question, how familiar does that sound? See, many respond in anger even today to God's gift to Jesus. Oh, not the baby Jesus, the cute little harmless one lying in a manger, you know, or the spirit of Christmas or giving gifts or having days off or Christmas bonuses. Nobody objects to any of that. See, what the world objects to is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. See, the world is in rebellion against God. We're an enmity, the Bible says. We are enemies of God. We are born into the world in rebellion against God. And I want you to stop and think how true this is just in a moment of just one illustration. Is there not something in the heart of human beings that when we're told we can't do something, it becomes like the only thing we want to do? 
Isn't that true? Think about it. Where does it come from? It comes from Adam. God said, hey, you can enjoy everything that I've created for you except you can't eat of the fruit that's in the tree that's in the center of the garden. Everything else is all yours. Have at it. I don't know how long it took. And I know that every day, just like when you tell your children, don't touch that, you can't touch that. Don't sit in my chair. You can't sit in my chair. And you walk out of the room and they're just going, I'm going to sit in his chair. You know, I'm going to grab his remote and sit in his chair and we're going to see who's really king of the forest. You know, it's just the way that it is. There's something in the heart of human beings that God says is sin nature. It's rebellion. When God tells us we can't do something, we say, you know what? Let me see if I can do it and get away with it. I'm going to test you to see whether this is true. See, the world is angry with God because the heart of man is wicked and deceitful and we're enmity with God. We don't want God telling us what to do. And that's the heart of man. And that's what sin nature is all about. See, throughout Jesus' life here on earth, he made it very clear to all who would listen that he is God in human flesh. And there's only one God. And before Abraham existed, he said, I am. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. What he's saying is, you know what? There's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to be forgiven by God. There is no other belief system that is correct according to the word of God. There is nothing else, nowhere else, no one else who can do for us what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way to heaven. He said, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He who eats of me, believes in me, trusts in me will have eternal life. I am the resurrection and the life. Even though you die, if you believe and trust in me, you shall surely live. Do you believe this, he asks, of Mary and Martha. He said, I'm the good shepherd. I am the gate. I'm the doorkeeper. No one comes in but through me. And on and on and on, the word of God teaches. And the religious leaders of his day knew exactly what he was claiming because they tried to kill him every time he claimed to be equal with God. And in fact, that's exactly what he died of. He died of the charge that he was a blasphemer making himself equal to God. And he was innocent of that charge because he is who he claimed to be. Now, the interesting thing is that there's no other religion, there's no other belief system. And the reason that the world hates Jesus is because Jesus does not allow them to believe whatever it is that they want to believe. There is no other name given to men under heaven by which men can be saved. So even today, there are many angry at God like Herod. They refuse to accept Jesus Christ as King and Lord. And because they don't believe, they don't want anybody else to believe. And so they fight to remove nativity scenes from government facilities. They fight to remove prayer from classrooms. They fight to remove Bible clubs from high schools. They fight to remove the Ten Commandments from courthouse walls. And if they could, they would remove Jesus from Christmas. And how foolish that is. See, some are angry at God. They shake their fists and they say, you know what? Don't you tell me what to do. I've met others who are angry at God when they don't even recognize or acknowledge his existence, but whenever anything goes, quote, wrong in their life, they're angry at God because, God, why did you let this happen? 
why did this happen to me? If you're really God, why don't you do for me what I want you to do? Why did I lose my marriage? Why do I have this financial reversal? Why do I have cancer? Why do I have another health affliction? Why, why do I have this? Why is this going on? Why is my son or daughter caught up in drugs or alcohol or my husband or my wife? We don't, you know, God, why don't you do what I want you to do? And they're angry at God. And yet at the, at the end of the day, in my conversation yesterday, you know, you know why, why do people live and suffer? And I said, you know what, isn't it a loving God who will allow people to live and suffer and still have an opportunity to receive God's forgiveness by trusting in Christ as their Lord and their Savior than to allow someone to go through life with everything going their way and all of a sudden drop dead on that appointed day and never sense a need for God or his forgiveness in their life? What is more unloving? I say it's more unloving to live your life and, and sense no need for God only to die and then have to stand before the great white throne judgment of Jesus Christ and say, oh, I, I never sensed a need for you. Too bad, be gone. Go to hell for eternity. That's not loving. I'd rather lose my business. I'd rather lose my health. I'd rather have other afflictions in my lifetime if it wakes me up to my greatest need to be forgiven by my creator in order that I can come to know Christ as my savior and spend eternity with him in the fellowship of his company and praise and worship him and, and be in heaven in his presence than in hell away from him? You know what? That's a loving God who will remove everything and anything that's in your way that causes you not to see your need for your creator. That's a loving God, Jesus, who took that man and said, you know what, here's the deal. Sell everything that you have, then come and follow me. To strip him of everything that he put before God in order to him to see that his greatest need is God's forgiveness. That's a wonderful God. It's a loving God. And you have two choices when those times come in life. You can either shake your fist at God and be angry with him, or you can bow your knee and worship him as your Lord and your Savior trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, praising God that he used that time in your life to bring about a spiritual awakening that at that moment in time when you recognize nothing else was important at all, he stripped everything else away and you could clearly see your greatest need was his forgiveness and his great love for you and that while we were sinners, he sent Christ to die for you and for me and that we could welcome him and receive him as our savior. See, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, therefore that he will exalt you at the proper time. A broken and contrite heart, God will never despise. Are you apathetic? Are you angry? The third response is found in what I would call the proper response to the God of the universe back in Luke's gospel in chapter 2, and we'll wrap it up on this. Luke introduces us to a man by the name of Simeon. And Simeon's response is one that I would say very simply is one of anticipation. There's apathy, there's anger, and there's anticipation. And in Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 25, notice what we see. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Savior. 
And he came in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him into his arms. Simeon took the child Jesus into his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen thy salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and his mother were amazed at the things that were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You know, we're told that this man was waiting, anticipating, looking for the gift that God had promised. For God had promised the world that he would send a Savior into the world the consolation of Israel. The angel told Mary that his name would be Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. The passage goes on and says, And for many as received him, to them he has given the privilege to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. Simeon was searching waiting, anticipating. He was looking for the child that God had promised the Savior of the world. And when he saw him, he took him into his arms. And what a wonderful picture that is of what you and I need to do when we embrace Jesus as our Savior. Not only take him into our arms, but we take him into our heart. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. For it's with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with his lips he confesses unto salvation. A beautiful picture of receiving that gift. God has sent down his son, and he hands him to you and to me and offers him as the propitiation, we're told, for our sins. The one who sacrifices pleasing to God and acceptable to God, and there's nothing else left to do than what Jesus has done. And he says that, you know what, you're not perfect and I'm not perfect. We need to turn from our sins and we need to turn to God. We need to trust in Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. We're to believe upon him and receive him into our hearts. And it's something that isn't an external thing. It's not a ritual thing. It's not a religious thing. It's something that is a personal decision that's made in the heart of every human being. And the point is this, when God offers you his gift of forgiveness, you have two choices. You can either receive him gladly or you can reject him. Where are you? It's one or the other. You may be apathetic, indifferent, good for you, not for me. I'm not a religious man. I'm not a spiritual man. I don't really think about those things. It doesn't really make any difference to me. I'm too busy making a living. I'm too busy making money. I'm too busy conquering the world. But you know what? Apathy or indifference is a rejection. You may be angry at God because of something that's going on in your life. And I would challenge you to consider if that's what God needed to do to get your attention so that you see your greatest need is him and his forgiveness in Christ. What a wonderful God he is. Simeon's response was anticipation, searching, looking. What's my purpose? Why am I here? What's the answer to life? What is the peace that I see in your life? What is the joy I see in your life? How are you getting through this time in your life? And you know what? We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. 
And when people see Christ within us, they're attracted because they don't have any hope. Jesus Christ is our hope. There is no other hope for man outside of Jesus. So which are you? Apathetic? I challenge you, it's time to make time to consider why you're here, how you got here, what life's all about, and where you're going when you die, because you are going to die. If you're angry, I challenge you and encourage you, don't be angry at God. Bend your knee, worship him, praise him, because he is a good God. If you have anticipation and you've been searching and looking and trying to understand what it's all about, then let me tell you today, very clearly, according to the authority of the Word of God, that Christmas is all about Jesus. His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and He is alive today. And He will come again one day to judge the living and the dead. I praise God that I have trusted in Christ and I will never have to give an account for sin, which he took away on the cross. All of my sins yesterday, today, and even the ones I haven't committed yet were all taken away when I trusted in Jesus as my Savior. This Christmas, I challenge you to understand and consider, you know, while it's been said that it's often, you know, it's much better to give than to receive, there's a time to reach out and receive the gift that God has offered to us, forgiveness, through Jesus Christ. There is nothing better than hearing these words, for God so loved the world, that he gave as a gift his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your message. We thank you that we are ambassadors who have been entrusted with that message, that great treasure of your word. God, it's my prayer that those who are angry would bow their knee before you and confess their need for forgiveness and that they would trust in Christ as their Lord and their Savior. I pray for those who are apathetic or indifferent like the hard soil or even the soil that receives the word but then gets caught up in the, in the busyness of life and the riches of the world choke out the fruit. That God, you would remove everything from our life to see that there's nothing that's more important than coming into a relationship with you through faith in Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, you answer those and, and, and you, you seek out those who are seeking you who look to you with anticipation, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise that you make, and that's my prayer for all who hear these words, that today would be that day, historic moment in their life, where they will be born again, not by their own efforts, but by your will. By grace, we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast. And Lord, we thank you for the light of the world who came into darkness and his light shines and the darkness could not comprehend it. And the darkness hated the light for our deeds were evil. But I thank you for the light that you gave us, that we can approach you and come to you and throw ourselves upon your mercy and that we find forgiveness and peace and joy. Peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.